Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Matthew Crawford, author of the new book, Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road, says that once we were drivers, the open road alive with autonomy, adventure, danger, trust, and speed. Today, we are as likely to be in the backseat of an Uber as behind the wheel ourselves. Tech giants are hurling us toward a shiny, happy, self-driving future, selling utopia, but equally keen to advertise to a captive audience strapped into another expensive device. Are we destined then to become passengers and not drivers? He says that much more may be at stake than we might think. Matthew Crawford attended University of California, Santa Barbara, majored in physics, later earned a Ph.D. in political philosophy from University of Chicago, specializing in ancient political thought. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, but he lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he joins us for the program today. Matthew Crawford, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Welcome. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's wonderful to have you. Interesting book and uh, a lot to discuss. Uh, we're also joined by Brian Champagne, who is USU Professional Practice Associate Professor of Journalism and Communication. Welcome, Professor Champagne. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, before we jump into uh, to the book, uh, Brian Champagne, I, I want to, uh, for, for those... A lot of people will have heard uh, some of your pieces on UPR and uh, caught some television reports. Uh, you're fascinated by cars. I, I want to get uh, a little bit of uh, about that. What's uh, what's your fascination with cars, automobiles? I don't know. I think I just love the movement of them. Loved them since I was five and been reporting on them off and on since 1996. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, go ahead. And I my... So I'm able to test a lot of cars, and between test cars, I drive a 1969 AMC Rebel. Yeah, 1969 AMC Rebel. I'm not even familiar with that model. Wow. Uh, Few few people are. Yeah. 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 I I can leave the keys in it because no one knows how to steal it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to take it for a test drive. Um, with with permission. With permission. You know, the, the stick shift can be regarded as a, um, a millennial anti-theft device. Yeah. No one knows how to use it. I've even got rid of a Generation X because it's three on the tree. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, Matthew Crawford, before we jump into the book, um, you're, I, I, I don't know if you've finished, you're in the process of uh, remodeling or working on a 1975 VW uh, Beetle. Yeah, it's been a 10-year project. <clears throat> it started off as just a, a bucket of rust, basically, held in in the shape of a VW just by, uh, you know, habit and, uh, and carpet mastic, maybe. But um, yeah, I'm not just restoring it. I'm I'm radically modifying it. It's gonna it's gonna make about five or six times the horsepower it started with, and of course that means rethinking the whole car from the ground up. Wow. So so why a Beetle? Oh, <laughs> well, my first car was a '63 Beetle, so maybe it's a case of middle-aged nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 15, before I even had a driver's license, I started working at a Porsche shop. And, uh, you know, I was never going to afford a Porsche, but uh, VW is kind of the poor man's Porsche. Okay, very good. Uh, well, I, well, as we go along, um, Brian Champagne will kind of alternate uh, questions. Um, but uh, so with Matthew Crawford, I'm fascinated by the, 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 a lot of the themes of the book. What if you'd begin where you begin uh, in your preface? You talk about the joy of uh, driving a motorcycle off-road. 
You, you use the phrase, you, you say this, this helps you to feel existentially justified, hmm. and the price is broken ribs and, and some other problems. Yeah, so I describe riding a, a dirt bike through the woods. So, you know, there's roots and rocks and, and tree limbs and mud and steep descents and creek crossings, and all this stuff is just coming at you. Even if you're only going, say, 15 miles an hour, it takes total concentration. And if I push the pace beyond, you know, <laughs> beyond my sort of current skill level, and it goes well, meaning I don't crash, I feel elated. I feel somehow enlarged. Um, but, of course, it doesn't always go well. I had, I think, four trips to the ER in the course of 12 months with a bunch of broken bones. So the question is, you know, why do something like that? <clears throat> and um, so that that's really provided the, the beginning hunch I wanted to explore in the book, which is that risk is somehow bound up with humanizing possibilities. And that's one of the uh, uh, one of the promises held out, right, by by driverless cars and by a lot of other uh, automation utopian possibilities that are held out to us. We're, we're going to reduce the risk. Yeah, I think you can regard driverless cars as one instance of this wider phenomenon in which the demands of skill and competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience, um, which is great, ex except that, you know, our skills then tend to atrophy from lack of use, just like a muscle. And I think if you go far enough down the ro that road in sort of different areas of, of life, eventually the whole world starts to look like one big assisted living facility, um, kind of like that movie Wally. You ever mm -hmm. see that? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that, yeah. Yeah, so in Wally, you, you've got this scene where <clears throat> you've got these grotesquely fat people hovering around this sort of grid in these driverless pod things, slurping from enormous cup holders and staring at their screens, and their faces beam with this kind of slackened pleasure. So it's a picture of people who are completely safe and content, and yet somehow less than human. Uh, they've just kind of checked out. So that's kind of a, a picture of a certain dystopia that we ought, I think, I don't know, just have in the back of our heads as we think about what we want to do in the coming years. Brian Champagne, your uh, first questions for Matthew Crawford. Um, so, Matthew, been all the way through the book. Let me recommend it to anyone listening right now. What I what I caught from it is uh, why we drive. Your reasons there's there's kind of romance, there's human development, and then there's um, big tech. Which one of those do you want to hit first? Because I mean, kind of vary in seriousness. Oh well, I mean, I think they're they're all kind of connected. So we could start with. Um, you know the big tech thing, um, and I think that'll that'll lead us into uh, to all the other concerns. Okay, go. Yeah, can you explain the uh, the role of big tech in driving? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, I guess one impetus for this book came when I read this uh, news item about a Google self-driving car. 
you know, sort of test car that had rolled up on an intersection in, in the real world, and it was a four-way stop. And so it came to a stop and waited for the other cars to come to a complete stop before proceeding through. Uh, but, of course, that's not what people do, right? They tend to just kind of roll through it. And so the Google car got confused and couldn't handle the situation and just kind of got paralyzed. And what was interesting to me is that the Google guy in charge, <clears throat> he said that what he had learned from the episode is that human beings need to be less idiotic, by which, of course, he meant that they need to behave more like robots and be strict rule followers. And <clears throat> I think completely invisible to him was the kind of social intelligence on display at that intersection. You know, people make eye contact. Maybe one person waves the other through because there's always ambiguous cases of right-of-way. But that kind of um, social intelligence is very hard to reproduce with machine logic. So the conclusion is we need to get humans out of the way uh, to make room for the driverless cars. And, and also the data collection? Yeah. So I think you have to ask why... You know, Google is very prominent in this space, and you have to ask why they're getting into cars. So, you know, what is Google? Well, it's the world's largest advertising firm. And I think if they can succeed in, <clears throat> you know, colonizing your commute with another tether to the sort of the logic of Internet economics based on surveillance and advertising, that's going to be a big revenue stream. So <clears throat> I think they envision the car as another device that will track your uh, movements through the world, gather a lot of behavioral data, and then use that to tailor um, you know, pitches to you, maybe even while you're driving sort of suggestions, and you might want to stop here, you might want to stop there. So <clears throat> it, you know, it's kind of the opposite of our usual the way we think about driving, which is that you're, you're you're roaming and you're not you don't have to give anyone an account of your movements through the world. It's kind of a, a moment of of really kind of being on your own, which is I think part of what's appealing to it. I want to ask a question about the the potential pervasiveness of uh, of automation for for this to right for this to really work if we're going to go full automation full driverless cars the whole infrastructure will be dependent upon everybody going that way right there 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 won't be room for outliers yeah there is a kind of totalizing logic to it um, so there's a whole literature um, what's called human factors um, in automation. And the upshot of it uh, is that it's going to be very hard for computer cars and human drivers to share the road just because they're very different forms of intelligence. So, yeah, to, for, for driverless cars to realize their promise of um, gains in traffic efficiency and reduced accidents, you know, which are very real um, possibilities, but to realize them... Um, you really can't have them sharing the road with human drivers. So we, that, that part is not very well publicized, the fact that um, it's a, it's a kind of all-or-nothing thing. Mm -hmm. And that's emerged only over the last few years um, with clarity in the, in the uh, sort of research. Mm. 
So I think some of the initial hype is turning out to be uh, a bit misplaced. I want to ask you to uh, push back on on the you know you're definitely bringing up some problems, uh, potentially very serious problems with uh, going full automation. Uh, but you do point out in in the book the highway deaths are up, especially motorcycle deaths are, are up. That there are a lot of problems. Some people, a lot of people love driving. Other people dread it. Uh, there are some positives, wouldn't there be? Oh, for sure. I mean, I could imagine if I had a commute that consisted of bumper-to-bumper traffic on a freeway, I would love to have a uh, an automated car. And in fact, we already have automation that can handle that situation. For example, the Tesla with its autopilot. Um, that's a very constrained environment. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a, a supercomputer level of um, power to handle um, that situation, whereas a crowded, chaotic urban environment, that's the problem that's proved to be very hard to solve. And you're right, distracted driving is a serious problem. As a motorcyclist, I, you know, there's hardly a day goes by when I don't almost get killed by somebody. <clears throat> so you could regard uh, you know, driverless cars as an attempt, maybe by Silicon Valley, to help solve the, this problem of distracted driving that they helped to create in the first place with the smartphone. So <clears throat> there are definitely um, upside, um, you know, reasons for it. But I tend to think that, you know, when they say human beings are terrible drivers and justify it that way, I think that's an unrealistically low view of our capacities because, in fact, uh, we're pretty good at it for the most part. And um, we could talk about we could talk about that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, we're t- uh, we'll come back much more, of course, with uh, Matthew Crawford. The new book is Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. And uh, we're joined also by uh, Brian Champagne from USU's uh, Journalism Department. I'll give you an alert, Brian Champagne. I'll give you the first questions coming out of break. Uh, Let's go to break now. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Support also comes from Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech and startup industries, supporting good causes that affect us all. Information about our weekly town hall meetings or advertising in the magazine at siliconslopesmagazine.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to present the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. And this artist contest celebrates the beauty of this interdependence and connectedness. From now until September 4th, we'll be accepting submissions and then you'll get to vote on your favorite design. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for anyone to view and download. For more details, go to upr.org. And to submit, just send your submissions to katie.swain at usu.edu. Celebrate nature and art. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Matthew Crawford is author of the new book, Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. Uh, He says that uh, once we were drivers, 
And uh, But today we're as likely to be in the backseat of an Uber as behind the wheel ourselves. Tech giants are hurling us toward a shiny, happy, self-driving future, selling utopia, but uh, we much more may be at stake than we might think. Uh, why we drive toward a philosophy of the open road. And along with uh, Matthew Crawford, we're joined by USU Professional Practice Associate Professor of Journalism and Communication, Brian Champagne. And uh, we'll give uh, Brian Champagne the first questions in this segment. Thank you. Um, so, Matthew, after reading your book, um, I just took a family trip over the weekend. We, we went 1,200 miles total. And um, after reading the book, um, I was you scared me about atrophy. And so I kept the nav system off until the last five miles to find the specific hotel location. Could you hit the atrophy in the book? And is there any more areas of atrophy that you've discovered since publishing? Yeah, well, specifically with regard to GPS, since you mentioned it, <clears throat> um, there's some fascinating cognitive science um, about what happens when we habitually and routinely rely on it, which is that the part of the brain responsible for spatial reasoning, the hippocampus, does in fact start to atrophy. And this ties into research on childhood development that shows that um, it's only when a child starts moving um, independently rather than being carried passively that they start to develop a map of the world and um, sort of be able to, you know, kind of get a sense of themselves in the world. And it's tied into the development of all kinds of higher capacities, like like memory, actually. <clears throat> so, and, and on the flip side, when they look at the brains of London taxi drivers who have to memorize about 25,000 streets and everything that's on them, it's an incredible accomplishment. Um, when they do brain scans on these guys, their hippocampus is actually enlarged. So the point is just that <clears throat> you know we evolved as embodied beings who find our way through the world, and when we stop doing that, we're embarking on quite a significant social experiment, um, and don't quite know, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> the effect, what the effects of it will be. But you asked also about other forms of atrophy. And there I would I would kind of shift a little bit towards um, a discussion of, of political culture. So look at an intersection at say in say Rome, which is famously chaotic. Or it looks chaotic at least to a visitor. So, you know, there's hardly any rules that seem to be followed. Um, yet people just kind of find their way through it's very improvisational. It's very, um, it, it takes a lot of trust among the drivers. And I find that trust to be a significant thing. Um, I think democracy relies <clears throat> or depends on a sort of disposition that we have to solve problems together without the supervision of some bureaucracy or some technology that's going to do everything for us. So <clears throat> if we kind of proceed on the assumption that humans are no good at this, there's a kind of infantilization that slips in um, that I think is not, doesn't sit very well with our democratic traditions, which require 
I think, a presumption of individual competence, because that's the basis for this kind of trust, uh, where we work things out together. I want to, uh, before, uh, no, go ahead, uh, Brian Chapin. Well, and uh, there's, uh, maybe you can help even make, there's so much of this that is tied to driving that. I'm thinking even, yeah. um, uh, uh, now we're seeing many people clashing politically on the street. Uh, are the skills for that, Do we have, are those tied to driving in some way? Well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought of uh, making that tie, but uh, I guess I guess we could try here on the fly together. Um, <laughs> I talk I mean, I and did. you talk. Is that like a four-way stop sign? And if we <laughs> and if we lose the ability at a four-way stop, are we going to lose it elsewhere? In no, I, I like that um, that suggestion. I mean, um, uh, a, a sort of crowded intersection is kind of like a conversation where you have to um, sort of have the tact to um, to let others, you know, have their turn. You have to be sort of sensitive or attentive to the situation and not be totally locked up in your own head. I think a lot of our political rage right now on all, on all sides um, can be viewed as... Um, kind of solipsism or, you know, thinking that the world just revolves around you. So, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, sounds great. I, Tom, do you want to... <laughs> yeah, I want to expand this. So, you, um, so Matthew Crawford, you talk about, um, you know, populist movements. You, you talk about the Yellow Vest movement in, in France. Um, maybe you can connect those up. With, with you know with the themes of your book, yeah. So the yellow vest that your listeners are probably familiar with was this massive protest movement in France that brought Paris and many other cities really to a halt almost every weekend for uh, over a year. <clears throat> and it began, interestingly enough, as an automotive protest. So it's named for the yellow vests that motorists have to carry in their trunk in case of emergency. And so it was prompted by some pretty minor, almost trivial-sounding things, a slight reduction in speed limits and a fuel tax. But I think it, it's, um, it's, it revealed, I think, that we, re we regard, I think, in many of the Western democracies, our political uh, authorities as illegitimate. Somehow, and this is being expressed in, in different kind of drivers' revolts. Um, and in the case of <clears throat> France, you know, this tax and reduction in speed limits really touches on flyover country <clears throat> or the, the peripheral France, as they call it, more than you know people in Paris who ride the metro. So, you know, it was a proposal of Macron that I think answered to a certain view of the elites that, you know, environmental virtue is one of their titles to rule. And, uh, of course, they're not really paying the price for these, for these restrictions. So it's a case of not having skin in the game. And that, that phenomenon, I think, is quite widespread of a perception that um, the elites who rule us don't have, don't really uh, suffer the consequences of the decisions they make.
Do you think that's, I can see this more at least starting more in a, in a country like France, America, where there's so much of a romance of the open road. Do you think that that will, I guess where I'm going is we're, we're so divided. Everything's divided. Even a, even a, you know, a virus like COVID is, <laughs> we have political divisions, right? Um, do you think we're heading toward the divisions like this, where, where we have a driver's revolt in, in America? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, hmm. Yeah, on, on, I think it's hard to imagine something on that scale of what happened in France. Um, you know, in Germany also, anytime there's a proposal to uh, put a speed limit on the Autobahn, uh, they get real political trouble. They regard the Autobahn as sort of um, you know, sacred. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think American drivers are quite politicized in this way, in the way that many European drivers are. And of course, in Europe, driving is taken very seriously. So, for example, in Germany, driver's education, you know, before you get your license, goes on for weeks. And like several times a week, you go for you know an hour of instruction or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of training that I think allows them to... Um, have the discretion on the Audubon to decide their own speed uh, without any speed limit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that would play in, in America. <laughs> going, going, <laughs> yeah, we going like to, to think of ourselves school. as the uh, ha- land of the free and home of the brave. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we go on to some other themes, uh, I want to direct a question to you, Brian Champagne. You said, uh, I was very fascinated, uh, you said that Matthew Crawford had, had, had scared you about um, about atrophy, right? And And, yes. and so on your, on your trip, you'd turned off the, what did you turn off, the GPS or the? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we usually use the phones. And, yeah, we kept that off. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm curious about that. You're... Um, so tell me about that, that fear of, of atrophy. I think we can relate to that. Well, I had actually heard a study that there was a study done when London taxi drivers started using GPS that their, their hippocampi, um, did have some atrophy and, uh, and I'm more, I'm scared for my aging brain and I wanted to, to use it as much as I can. Um, I was driving home last night in a Honda CRV. Uh, in traffic with the radar crews on and the lane departure, it, it'll keep you in your lane. And I hate the way it does it, but I got to a point where I let it do some. Uh, so, but yeah, just like I say, inspired by Matthew, try to do, try to do whenever I can. And are, are you are you, you know, con- are you concerned in other areas of your life? I, I can think of other areas in my life where I I <laughs> would have a concern. I mean, convenience, yes. Wonderful, right? But uh, the the yeah. downside might maybe is atrophy. Yeah, I'm thinking of my to do list today, and I put it all on my phone so I wouldn't mess it up. And I wonder if I'm losing the ability to memorize my to do list every time I do that. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. right, we you know, including myself, you know, we we rely on Google if you need to know something. And so the burden of memorizing stuff or, or even, I think, learning stuff, we kind of outsource to this system. But, you know, the way original thinking happens is when you synthesize stuff that you all have in your head at once. You know, often it's, 
you know, when you're in the shower or you know, after you, while, while sleeping, these connections get made and you have that aha moment uh, when everything sort of clicks into view. And I think that is only possible if you've got the stuff actually in your head. You can't use external storage and accomplish that kind of, um, that kind of synthesis. Although I guess the whole point of big data is that you can have machines draw inferences from patterns in the world and come up with original insights. So <clears throat> if that is true, <laughs> that would be a whole new frontier in which the activities we think of as distinctly human, namely sort of original and thinking and insight, if that can be mechanized, well, you know, why not just give it up and make way for the machines? But I, I'm a little skeptical that, in fact, um, we will see uh, that kind of intelligence ever um, emerge from machines. Hmm. Good reason for that. Tom, Tom yes. uh, Matthew is slipping with second book there. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> he has a book. He has a book, uh, The World Outside Your Head. and uh, The World Beyond Your Head. Yeah, yeah. that's Beyond Your Head. Sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think uh, I've outlawed in my house the shower radio. I think it's a horrible, horrible invention. Mm. Well, why think so? Think all the inspiration. Think of all the inspiration that displaces because you're listening to something else when you're in the shower. When unless it's Utah public enough. radio. Yeah, right I, I was just going to say, yeah, there, yeah, there you go. But but you'd probably say, Brian, well, wait till you get out of the shower to tune into UPR, right? Yeah, and immediately do it. Yeah, but yeah. but keep the shower time sacred for your for <laughs> very creative, good, very creative good. thoughts to come. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Quick question: Are are our motorcycles? As far as you can see, completely left out. What would happen to a motorcycle in an, autom in an automatic freeway? Well, among motorcyclists, we sometimes joke that it would be great to have everyone in autonomous cars because they're going to be sort of very predictable in their behavior. And that would leave us free to just dart among them and, you know, be, be real hooligans. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't think <clears throat> that we would be allowed to uh, continue in this way. You know, where there's where there are billions of dollars, there is political clout, and uh, and let, as we mentioned at the beginning of, of the program, the infrastructure of roads would have to be remade to suit the um, the needs of driverless cars. You know, sensors embedded in everything, and you can't just have rogue. Um, you know, motorcycles darting around. That. Hmm. Uh, so Matthew, uh, yeah, yeah. So Matthew Crawford, I, I want to, um, you, you mentioned Wally, -E, and uh, you know, it's it's those those scenes are funny, but they're they're poignant too, right? The the people who are completely captured by technology. Uh, is how much of that is, uh, how much of that is a real danger? In other words, the, the, the model for big tech, a, a firm like Google, the, the business model is capture my eyeballs as much as possible for as much of the day as, as they can. So is, is, that the, is that the battle? Is that the end? I think it is. I mean, it's, it's an attentional economy is what we've got. And the way you capture people's attention is by knowing as much as you can about them. 
So gathering behavioral data through surveillance that's totally um, you know, customized to you, the point being to develop a sort of proprietary science of nudging and steering your behavior toward profitable channels. And often this takes place without you even knowing it. It's sort of beneath the threshold of awareness. And you know, as for Wally, you could actually point to a whole bunch of um, movies um, where driverless cars seem to play a prominent role in conveying a kind of dystopian mood. Somehow we have this sense that being rendered into passengers is touching on something really important, um, a kind of autonomy um, or maybe human agency is something basic. So I think that we have intuitions in this direction, and, and I'm trying to kind of explore those in the book. Uh, Brian Champagne, next questions. Um, I actually uh, did a new story on uh, autonomous cars and the ethics, and it's uh, funny you covered the uh, the trolley problem as well. I interviewed sociologists who talk about how um, blind and disabled people uh, could now be uh, more mobile. Um, where do you see how do you, do you weigh in on that? Um, well, yeah, it's right. Um, it's not clear to me how a driverless car is better than, say, a taxi in that regard. I mean, it would require massive capital investment by whoever owns the driverless car. So, um, you know, in the case of Uber, um, you know, this the suspicion is that their interest in driverless cars, well, it's not a suspicion, it's just obvious, it would be to replace um, human drivers. But, um, yeah, as far as sort of the, the, the blind and disabled, yeah, of course, we have to find a way for them to be able to economically get around and, and have that independence. I think that need is often pointed to... Um, to, to justify this more wholesale transformation of mobility uh, by pointing to uh, the disabled or, or the old. And that's, that's how the, you know, sort of the thin point of the wedge wherein this unrealistically low view of human capacities in general slips in, the, the kind of infantilization I'm talking about, because it looks like a sort of nice democratic, um, you know, solicitude for, um, for the fragile or, or the weak. Um, but it, you know, if you generalize that stance, again, I think we, um, we end up with this highly managed society that doesn't um, really comport with our traditions of self-government. Because self-government isn't part of, it's a disposition it depends on a disposition to sort of find your way through the world by the exercise of your own powers. That's pretty fundamental. Uh, let's take another break, um, and we'll come back uh, with our last segment uh, with Matthew Crawford. The, uh, the new book is Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. And we're also joined by Brian Champagne from uh, USU's Journalism Department. We'll have more following this.
Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. And support also comes from the Herald Journal, your in-depth source of local Cache Valley news, delivering local, state, and national news directly to your home, offering online and U.S. mail newspaper delivery. Information at hjnews.com or at 752-2121. When it comes to voting rights, 2020 marks multiple significant anniversaries, 150 years since a Utahan became the first woman to vote in the modern nation, 100 years since the 19th Amendment was passed, and 55 years since the Civil Rights Act became law. Join us on August 26th at the historic Cache County Courthouse to celebrate suffrage and the activists who worked and are still working to ensure these rights are protected. More information at upr.org. My name is Helen Cannon, and I garden in Cache Valley. Utah Public Radio is very important to me. It has been for much of my life. It's vital to my happiness. UPR is your public radio station, and we share your concerns about finding ways to safely support restaurants and retailers in our communities. That is why we are offering free on-air and online announcements to help you better inform your customers about COVID-19 shopping, dining, and entertainment services. Simply go to upr.org and submit your hours for dine-in operations, pandemic policy shopping guidelines, virtual road trip links, and special curbside or drop-off food or grocery delivery details. UPR is committed to reconnecting us all, however your business or organization is making that happen. Let us help you by going to upr.org. Utah Public Radio welcomes the Utah Women in Leadership Project to Utah State University. The mission of the project is to strengthen the impact of Utah girls and women. Susan R. Madsen is founding director of the project and is the inaugural Karen Haight Huntsman Endowed Professor of Leadership in the John M. Huntsman School of Business. Madsen and her team create and compile resources on topics related to girls and women in areas that will coincide with USU Extension programs, including health, well-being, safety, finances, home and family, and youth development. You can learn more about the project at utwomen.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm joined in the role of co-host today by USU Professional Practice Associate Professor of Journalism and Communication, Brian Champagne. Our guest for the hour is Matthew Crawford, author of the new book, Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. Uh, so Matthew Crawford, to begin this segment, I want to uh, connect up a previous book, your, your best-selling book, Shop Classes, Soulcraft, where you made the case for, for manual uh, labor, um, and maybe connect that in, in theme. Uh, I think there are some connections to the new book. Um, so uh, first of all, maybe uh, your personal journey. Uh, you got a Ph.D., uh, but you owned a, your own motor- motorcycle shop. The, the, those two would seem to be in in conflict. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you might think so, but in fact, um, I found the mechanical work where you're you're always diagnosing problems. Um, there's always something new to be cognitively very demanding and intellectually uh, stimulating. So that first book, shop class, uh, Soulcraft, was 
an attempt to try to understand why my own experience of work didn't really fit the official ideology, according to which, you know, there's manual work and then there's knowledge work and there's sort of two very different things. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, the book explored the, um, in part, the, uh, the intellectual element of manual work. So it, it is, it does connect to why we drive in the sense that, um, I'm very impressed with uh, what the cognitive psychologists call embodied cognition. This is the idea that we don't think simply with our brains. We think with our whole bodies. And to the extent we're trying to um, use machine intelligence to reorder the world, we're kind of missing out on a, a vast domain of human intelligence uh, that is embedded in just everyday human activities. What if you could expand on that a bit? You 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 do write a lot in the book about you know the, this embodied experience. You write a lot about your riding on the motorcycle, for example, <laughs> uh, which you know very physical experience, right? As opposed to what what a lot of us do when we drive is, you know, kind of get to point from point A to point B, and uh, we're 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 in this kind of this uh, of you know metal cage which uh, which blocks out the sound and uh, we've got screens going it's a much less embodied experience yeah yeah you're right and so you know the, the case of motorcycles really heightens the, the point i'm trying to make because it's such an athletic activity especially when you're you know, cornering on a canyon road it's it's really very physical um and driving a car you know less so but it's still an activity that um, we have all kinds of skill that we're not even aware of, um, which is why it's so hard to, to kind of get driverless cars to the same levels of skill as humans. So much of it is tacit knowledge that we can't really articulate, but we know nonetheless. But you're also right that cars have become more and more insulated from the road, you know, heavier, a lot heavier, more elevated in the case of SUVs, more enclosed to the point that you need a backup cameras to you know see behind you, <clears throat> and so yeah, the the windshield starts to just look like one more screen, and it can't compete with the dopamine candy coming from all the other screens. So this um, this trajectory of automotive design of ever more insulation from the road is definitely exacerbated the problem of distracted driving it's just so boring to you know to drive mm -hmm. a contemporary car uh, yeah, and you need you need dis, you know, distractions, I, I suppose, um, in that kind of a, a driving experience. Uh, so, Brian Champagne. So, um, you cited a survey. I think it's eighty-one percent of people say they enjoy driving. I think it was about two thirds. Um, yes, yeah, from the Pew Center, whereas one third view it as sort of drudgery. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I've just found it. This is a. Uh... Chapter one, 69% and 27% went out driving for fun in the past week. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, as we move toward the autonomous and as people uh, embrace it, it, it there's that they, they don't care about driving. I wonder if there's a chicken and the egg thing here. Do we get what we demand in a car? Right now, the number one selling vehicle, the number one selling vehicle of all, uh, just coming up shy of a million is a Ford F-150. 
the number one selling uh, non-truck is a Toyota RAV4. Um, not the most exciting to drive models, yeah. um, but that's what we like. Our, our, yeah, chicken egg. Are we demanding this, or is it being given to us, fed to us? Well, well obviously, cars. when you buy a car, it's a huge capital expenditure, and um, you know, utility is probably you know the first consideration. So, some, you know, SUV or a truck or. Yeah, something spacious. You got to haul stuff. You got to move your family around. So obviously, the excitement of driving cars is not. Um, you know, you'd have to be um, pretty well off, I think, to to make that your sole criterion, and then maybe have your little sports car or something. But um, in the case of driverless cars, it's it's clear that this is not a response to consumer demand. It's very much a top-down project that has to be sold to the public. And polls indicate that people still mistrust it quite a bit. So, you know, there's nothing new about that. For 100 years, uh, the science of marketing has been in the business of creating new needs where there was none. But, um, yeah, in this case, it's, it seems to be especially, um, I don't know, very, it's, it's kind of sold to the public based on a narrative that it's inevitable. Um, and that, that serves to kind of demoralize anyone who might not uh, welcome this development and think, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. So can we stop it or at least, <laughs> forgive the, the pun, can we steer it toward maybe something that's healthier for everyone? Yeah, well, like I said, I think in the case of um, a freeway, uh, you know, that's the easiest problem to solve for for machine logic. So you can see long-distance trucking sort of giving way to driverless trucks. The problem is when they arrive at an urban center and then have to uh, negotiate that. That's, you know, you'd probably have a human driver then take control again. And that, that's actually been sort of proposed as, as the model. <clears throat> but uh, one side of that we need to keep in view is that in, I think, two-thirds of the states in the United States, driving of one form or another is the number one occupation for men with, uh, with only a high school education. So... We're talking about a massive dislocation in the labor market um, if we were to to really, you know, uh, get rid of all those drivers. So this is all tied into questions of uh, the common good and, you know, do we have one? Do we, do we still think of ourselves as being bound up together with our fellow citizens and can we steer our own... <clears throat> development as a nation in a way that uh, kind of takes care of everybody. I want to ask about uh, this uh, kind of the, the broader theme, the important theme. We've talked about uh, embodiment, right? Uh, uh, it seems like the way tech is going, and, and in some ways, you know, we want it just as much as the companies want to sell it to us. Um, we're on our devices all the time. Such convenience, such pleasure. 
Um, but it does get us in, in important ways out of our bodies and, uh, and we maybe lose the, those skills, those, those pleasures, that knowledge and wonder on a broader scale, how do we combat that? Or, or how, how do we come to want to combat that? Cause a lot, a big segment of the population I think is happy to go along. I don't think there's any necessary, um, conflict between human agency and technology. I mean, you know, when we're talking about the joy of riding a motorcycle, well, a motorcycle is a piece of technology, isn't it? It's, it's something that sort of amplifies your embodied capacities and it exaggerates them. You're going faster. The problem isn't, I think, technology itself. It's the business model in which it's deployed. So as far as devices, you know, the, the phone and everything else, um, it's a case of addiction by design. There was a very good book with that title. Um, so the point is to, to maximize time on device, as they, as they say, by sort of gamifying things and, and you know, making sure the user gets these little hits of reward for, for staying on the, on the device. So that's a a business lo- logic that is um, <laughs> is uh, pretty pretty dark. It's very much the same thing as what's going on a, in a casino with the slot machines that are programmed to give you a little reward just often enough to keep you there until your pockets are emptied. So, um, yeah, so I don't think we need to necessarily... Um, think that technology itself is necessarily and inherently has this um, tendency to erode human agency. We just have two minutes left. Uh, Brian Champagne will give you the last question or questions. Okay. Uh, what news events do you think are making your book more relevant? I know big tech is, is fallen into uh, distrust a little bit lately. Anything that you've seen in the news, you're like, yes, yes, I covered that. <laughs> well, of course... Looks like he's was, he was dropped out. Uh, okay. Oh, here, oh, you, you're, you're, you dropped out for a little bit. Maybe repeat what you just said. If you can remember. <laughs> Maybe he's dropped out again. While we're waiting for him to come back, uh, uh, Brian Champagne, uh, uh, did you have any news events in, in your mind in asking that question? Well, yeah, just the, uh, the final chapters of the book talk about the, the free Wi-Fi offered by Sprint and other carriers, like in downtown areas, and how they're, they're grabbing this information off people, and they can get a lot of information, even just based on location and where you go. And um, that's covered in, in one of the final chapters of the book, and we're seeing that now with people just sort of wondering about big tech and how many decisions we want to be made about, you know, even free speech, because we're on private property platforms, uh, how much power we want to give to uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's, it's certainly true. Very, very timely. And it seems like Congress uh, doesn't really have a, you know, an, an appetite to, to really regulate Silicon Valley. No. Yeah. Um, well, 
It looks like we're we're still we're we're still yeah we're still trying to get him back. So we we <laughs> may not get him back. We just have a minute left. Um, so uh, Brian Champagne, what what's your what's your big takeaway from the book? Oh, is Matthew back? I think we're still trying to get him back. I don't believe he's back. Matthew. Yet. Well, the poor guy, he has to listen to me summarize his book now. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Or is he back? Yeah, yeah he, he's back. He's back. Okay. Are, are you there? Yeah, so what are you guys talking about now? Should I just jump in where we were? I think we just have a minute left, so I think the, the question is, what, what's, what's your big takeaway from your book? One, one minute. Oh, geez. Well, um, you know, uh, <laughs> driving is, um, is one of those kind of, things that it's almost like uh, <laughs> wow. I think he dropped out again. Techno- that technology <laughs> takes out Matthew Crawford. That, that's that's right. Technology but I think we got I think yeah. we got the main points as we went along. Well we are we are at the end of the program. Um, so we'll say goodbye to to you, Brian Champagne, USU professional practice associate professor of journalism and communications. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And we thank Matthew Crawford. Uh, By the way, uh, you can go to his uh, website, MatthewBCrawford.com, and he's the author of the new book, uh, Why We Drive. Uh, Well worth the read. And thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.